Uh, we're going to go into the book of Revelation, God's gift to Jesus, so that everyone would get to know God better, because when you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. And so that was the plan. It's the most unique book in the whole Bible. It connects all the other pieces, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses from everywhere else, all of a sudden are put into their specific piece of the puzzle, and Revelation is the cover of the puzzle box. It's actually the illustration of the whole Bible. And we're in our 19th uh, stop as we're um, expositional. When, when I was being trained in ministry, the pastor that trained me, he said that he was an expositor, but he told us that we're training with him. He says, I'll just tell you what that means. He says, I'm an explanatory preacher. He said, I explain to people how using the Bible, they go from their Bible back to, you know, the Old Testament or back to the first century. So I take them through the Bible back to the first century. Then I show them how that impacts them today. He said the problem with many preachers is they get everybody back in the, you know, the Old Testament and they never get them home. They leave them there and they're wandering around confused. He said an explanatory preacher explains the Bible so that people all of a sudden can say, ah, now I know what God meant to them. That's the primary interpretation. So now I know what he wants me to do. So, so he said, you always have to get them home. And so I want to get you home with this idea. When will earth finally get a perfect climate? I told you at the beginning of the week that microplastics are now found in the highest mountains of the world. They're being carried by the winds. National Geographic did an amazing study showing that microplastics are now embedded into the, the ocean life. They're all, you know, as they're going through with their gills, you know, sifting through the water, they're getting all this microplastic. And now, two weeks ago, uh, an MD took his syringe, and when he was doing a blood draw, it's the first recorded time that a medical doctor was able to extract from a bloodstream microplastic. That's only one problem with our climate. One. So when are we going to get a perfect climate? Let's pray. Father, I ask for your wisdom that is from above, that is first pure, then peaceable and gentle and easily entreated and full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy to rule in our lives. And that's just when we let the word of Christ richly dwell in us. And I pray these students would get a hunger to invest the 72 hours it takes to really be in your word every year at least. Just 72 hours set aside to read. And then beyond that, I pray that they would meditate, devotionally study, and be transformed. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Okay, when's the earth going to get a perfect environment? We already know. That's our fifth and sixth stop. You know, we've gone, it's taken us 18 weeks, or 18 class hours to get through the first four. Now, in this hour, we're going through the next two of the seven events. The whole book of Revelation can be distilled down to seven very clear, logical, successive events. Number one, it's Christ's church on earth. It even tells where they lived, you know, the, and Jesus comes there in Patmos and the seven churches. Then it's Christ's church in heaven, and we see them, and we see ourselves in the future bowing down and worshiping. Then, 
all that awful stuff happens from chapter 6 to 18, the tribulation, and then Jesus comes back like we just saw. But now, now, remember I, I was telling you at that seventh uh, bowl, the earthquake and every mountain and every island, everything is moving. I said it was him, the Lord, preparing the earth for the millennium. That's what it is. Uh, Christ's earthly millennial rule is going to start. Now, it's preceded by warrior right now on earth, and we have to be taken out. Jesus promised he was preparing a place. He said, I'm going to come in like manner in the moment and twinkling of an eye at the last trump, and the dead are going to not be left behind. They're going to rise first, and the living will join them. And in Revelation 3, he says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of wrath coming on the earth. And what we go to is we're, we're gathering around his throne and we're receiving our outfit to wear forever, which is, as Revelation 19 says, our works. Not Christ's finished once and for all salvation. You can't earn that. But our good works, it actually literally says in chapter 19, how we live Christ for his glory. The tribulation hits. We covered that heavy. Then... Christ returns in flaming fire, executing vengeance on all who rejected him. He sets up his millennial rule. That's what we're looking at today, the implications of it. But even a perfect environment does not produce perfect people. Never has, never will. And so we see the rebellion, then the, the great white throne judgment, and then we enter uh, heaven. And that'll, that is coming in our last uh, session. But what are the steps to eternity? Well, Armageddon in the second coming is just the first step of this transition. Zechariah 12 to 14, where the eyes are melting, the tongues are melting, and everything. By the way, that was a description of what I read to you in Zechariah of what happens with neutron bombs. So there is, there is a weapon that does that, uh, that destroys organic life, but doesn't destroy everything else. But the Lord does that by his presence in we read that, and that's his second coming. Immediately, Matthew 25, 31 says, we have the sheep and the goat judgment. And um, my wonderful wife always reminds me, she's not here this morning, she's getting all of our gear ready for the airport, so we can hurry to the airport and, and board the plane at 4.40-something and, uh, and fly down and completely repeat this in Florida. Can't wait. Um, but look at chapter 25, verses 31. She always sits out there, and when I say, as you know, it says in Matthew, she goes like this. And I go, oh, honey, that's right. I have to read it, because maybe, you know, maybe they're not following along in their Bible, or maybe they don't know it says that wherever. But look what it says in Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him. Now, the neat thing about God is he doesn't exaggerate, and he doesn't misspeak, and he doesn't tell us anything there's not a reason for. And that's the blessing of Bible study. The more you study it, the more you see why he said what he said. Look what it says in verse 31. All the angels, this is the only time all the angels leave heaven. Only a delegation came to, you know, a striata, it says, you know, came and were saying glory to God in the highest at the birth of Christ. But now, at the second coming of Christ, they all come. All the holy angels with him. And he will sit on the throne of his glory in all the nations. So as soon as Jesus' feet touch down, boom, on the Mount of Olives, and it splits, and the whole earth, the topography, the climate, the, even the 
whether or not there are poisonous spiders and poisonous snakes and whether or not there are carnivorous animals, all of that changes when he hits. And he starts transforming the earth back to being very much like the Garden of Eden. And look what he does as the start of it. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on his left hand. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And on and on he goes. What is going on here? This is the sheep and goat judgment. There are going to be people that survive the, the tribulation. And they're not actively marching against God at Armageddon and Jerusalem and trying to kill the Jews and, and all the things that those people are doing at the second coming. They just are living in the ruins of their house, you know, trying to survive. And they're, they've never received Christ. They rejected him. But they survived. They got the mark. They made it. Those are the goats. And those are, are not allowed into the millennium. So why I'm telling you all that, the sheep and goat judgment says that only believers, believing Jews and believing Gentiles, enter the millennium. And the millennium starts with sheep. That's what we're going to see in Revelation 21 to 6. And God builds a visitor center, Ezekiel 40 to 48. Huge amount of the Bible. Bigger than like two books of Philippians. You know what I mean? Bigger than, you know, a, a lot of New Testament epistles. It's just a section on the Millennial Temple. It's God's visitor center. And at first, everybody that comes there is really excited because they believe in God, but as the thousand years goes on and everyone's having children in this perfect environment where there's no sickness and there's no, no pollution and there's no drought and there's no anything that's bad and everything grows great, there are a lot of people. And the visitor center is to get them acquainted with the gospel. And then we're going to see the final rebellion, the great white throne, lake of fire, and then going to our Father's house. So whatever you think of paradise being, that's what Revelation 21 to 6 is. You know, a lot of people think of Bora Bora or Tahiti or, you know, somewhere out there. And you think of palm trees and clear water and beautiful air and puffy clouds but you know what? Our world is dying. It's not like that now. Revelation 20 is the end of climate change. The earth is dying. When you look at the pollution of our world, did you hear last week 10% or 866 of the world's species of trees are going to go extinct this decade through overforestation and through acid rain from the places that still are polluting the air and, and when the rain goes through it, it makes sulfur which is like sulfuric acid and it's killing all these trees. The oceans are depleted. There are abundant harvests of fish. I mean, every year they're having to go further out and deeper trying to find fish. Did you know that's why you don't see red snapper that often, you know, on the menu? It used to be, when I was your age, red snapper was like what they were doing for the all-you-can-eat fish fries. And the reason was red snappers, those are fish, that they were catching were like six feet long. They were like mini whales. The problem is those things were like four and five and... I don't know how old they can live, but they were at least 400 years old because they'd been swimming around, eating down at their level of the ocean for a long time and multiplying. But commercial fishermen got better and better and better at dropping those nets and dragging those nets. And, and they don't just get the red snappers. They just dragged everything in sight, all the 
the levels of the biome or the, of the feeding chain or whatever. And so they had too many red snappers and it was very cheap and now they don't have, they, there aren't any more six foot long red snappers. They're not living long enough to get big. You see this, this whole, what we're seeing around us, the oceans are depleted of the abundant harvest of fish. When I pastored in Rhode Island, do you know what the old timers, we had daughters of the American Revolution, uh, descendants attending the church. And they had farms from the 1600s. They used to love to bring us over their house for dinner and they would smoke the bacon in the smokehouse that was built in 1638. I didn't know anything was still around from then. They have, their farms are from back then. And they would tell us what Rhode Island was like that their great greats told them about. They said that when they used to go to the ocean in Rhode Island, the ocean, when you looked in the water, it was jet black until you threw a rock in or put your foot in. Then it moved. They said lobsters lived on top of each other. Lobsters just, they would go out with pitchforks and fill their, their wheelbarrows with lobsters to feed to the pigs. Their, lobsters just were so abundant, they were like ants. You ever go to a fancy restaurant and order lobster? It isn't as plentiful as an ant anymore. You have to, you know, Go out and risk your life and find them out in deep water and put your trap down. I mean, everything is lessening. When they used to plow in the Great Plains, they would plow, the, they'd break up that soil that had never been used and they would plant and everything grew gigantically. Now, if we don't put, lace it with fertilizer, nothing will grow. And that's what this whole Ukraine deal is doing. It's cut off fertilizer production, which comes from natural gas, which Russia has a lot of, and they were making all this fertilizer, and so we're really in problem. And the birds in Mexico City, I've mentioned, fall from smoke-laced skies. Industrial waste have cast a blanket of death across farms and forests of the world. Only God can fix it. So paradise gets restored. Immediately after the second coming, the earth is renewed. The kingdom begins. Christ's reign. The wolf and the lamb, the calf and the lion, the cow and the bear, the child and the scorpion. Everyone's at peace. Jesus has come. The millennium's here. He rules the nations. And, and this era lasts a thousand years. Paradise is restored. Remember Milton's Paradise Lost, that famous classic book from ancient times? This is God, paradise restored. What does earthly paradise mean? Well, all the armies are disbanded. Nobody's training. Machinery of war is smelted down. Remember, they, they turned the, the weapons of war into plowing gear. Uh, Jerusalem is the world's capital. Wow. The 12 apostles are here judging the 12 tribes. The millennial temple is on the crown of Moriah's hill. Poverty is unknown. Everyone has all their heart can desire. There are no prisons, no hospitals, no mental institutions, no barracks, no saloons, no houses of prostitution, no gambling, casinos, no homes for the aged and infirm. Those are just whispered about as stuff from the past. That's what's going on in earthly paradise. And look how God describes it in chapter 20, the first three verses. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Remember, we started out last week and I had you say a thousand and you guys that's when you first started you know learning to respond and a thousand years and cast him in the bottomless pit verse 3 and shut him and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished and after these things he will be released for a little while 
That is a phenomenal portion of Scripture. What's the pit? Well, it's the bottomless pit. And this, this is when Satan, who has been confined to earth since chapter 12, is now out of circulation. And he's actually put in the bottomless pit, chained. He cannot roam around and cause problems. Remember, he's not omnipresent, but he's very mobile. And he has all these demons. And so they're in the pit. What is this pit? Uh, well, when I teach um, the Gospels, this is our chart from the Gospels. You see the cross right in the middle, kind of on the angle there? That's the, 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 that's the earth, you know, that kind of egg-shaped thing. And so you can see the cross. And when Jesus died... It says that he, remember he said to the thief dying next to him, today you shall be with me where? Paradise, not heaven. Where did he go? No, Jesus didn't go to heaven yet. He, he goes later. He went to where all the dead were. Did you know that there was this place called the grave or Hades, Sheol? That's where you read about the rich man and Lazarus. There's this place where everybody, it's not just in Luke. I mean, you ought to see what it says in Ezekiel. Ezekiel talks about all the layers of the civilizations, and as the new group comes in, it says the Assyrians look up, and here come the Babylonians, and the Babylonians look up, and there come the Persians. And I mean, it's this this place where all humans that have ever lived are still alive, and they're still on earth, and they're in this place. But half of it, you see it's kind of the egg with the flames in the forest, Half of it is a place of torment. That's where the rich man finds himself. And he says, he says uh, could you stick your finger in water and cool my tongue? I'm in torment. I'm in the flames. He's not in hell. Nobody's in hell at, yet until we, we see them thrown in the lake of fire at, at uh, the second coming. So it's yet future. Look at this. Paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise, Luke 23, 43. And do you remember there was the paradise of God in the Garden of Eden? And remember the cherubim were guarding. Once Adam and Eve sinned, they couldn't come in. And the tree of life was there. Where did it go? Well, the word paradise, Jesus calls the happy side of this place called Sheol, the, the grave, Hades. And so it appears to have two compartments uh, where Abraham, Moses, and all them are, and where the rich man and all the ones in torment and agony. So Jesus is crucified. He goes to paradise. Um, then he cuts over and goes to the abyss. That's where Satan's going to be chained. Right now, Satan's not chained there. Uh, the destroyer is in there. All those monster things we studied in chapter 9, the cosmic. How many of you got that right? Chapter 9. Come on. Oh, you guys. They're going to think that you're too smart. You know, they, they check how many get right and how many wrong, and you guys are going to just be too smart, and they're going to think that you're too smart and make it harder. But the abyss is in Luke 8.31. The demons didn't want to go there. It's in Revelation 9 that you remember. It's in Revelation 20. The chain there reminds us that's where Satan is taken right now, to the pit, the bottomless pit. But you notice there's a little kind of like uh, uh, rotten spot in the abyss, that Tartarus place. Oh, that's what's so fun about Bible study. Did you know that Jude and 2 Peter talk about that place? That's where the worst of the worst, the, the, the ones who are in everlasting chains under darkness are kept because they were trying to destroy all humanity at the flood. 
and they infiltrated humanity, and, and they were demonizing the whole world and all that's going on there. Jude talks about it. What does Jesus do? It says in 1 Peter 3, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. When you study 1 Peter, that's a curious verse. What happened? Well, when I, when I do the Gospels, I say he died on the cross. He went down during the three days to paradise. He empties out paradise. He goes over and proclaims his victory in, in the abyss. And then he steps out. See the, the brown Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday tomb? He steps out of the tomb. And then he ascends on the 40th day and goes to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And the next time we find paradise, it's not down there anymore in Revelation to the seven churches, it's back in heaven. It's very interesting. So, notice what I didn't talk about, the fire over there on the right, Gehenna, Lake of Fire. It's talked about what I just read in Matthew 25, it's talked about in Revelation 19, and look, it's where we're headed right now. And so that's just a little tour of the underworld, I call it. And Christ gives us this tour, he goes from the cross to Sheol, paradise, uh, proclaims kept, uh, his victory to those in Tartarus. He steps out of the tomb, number four. He ascends after 40 days, which, by the way, the Apostle Paul says at his ascension, uh, it says he led captivity captive and presents gifts and, and all. It's almost like this triumphal procession to heaven. Uh, he takes all those saints from paradise with him. Oh, there's a lot of stuff that is very interesting to study. In Matthew 27, did you remember when, when the, the uh, veil was rent, that it says the earth rent and there were huge earthquake, and it says that many graves were opened, and it said that saints in graves all over Israel came to life. But you know what, it's, it's a curious verse. It says, but they didn't come out of the tomb until Jesus did. Can you, I, see, I think in pictures, can you imagine uh, that Passover weekend, you're walking down through your field and you see a, this, this ancient tomb is cracked open and you think, whoa, that earthquake must have done it. So you went over to examine, see if there's any treasure, and as you leaned over looking down into that tomb, you saw two eyes looking at you and they said, hi. They say, who are you? They go, oh, hi, I'm, you know, Abishadai from the Old Testament. I just, I just was resurrected. Jesus is coming out of the tomb. I mean, it says they were alive in those tombs and waiting to come out when Jesus came out. You ought to read chapter 27. I love reading the Bible. It's, it's better than fiction, science fiction, and all those romance novels put together, you know? And then he ascends. He goes to heaven. He's on the right hand of the Father. And when Paul goes to see Jesus in 2 Corinthians 12, he sees the paradise of God. And so does Revelation 2.7. Okay, the millennium is the rule of the Messiah. It says in verses 4 to 6 that they live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. This is the biggest piece of the Old Testament. 28% uh, of the Old Testament is prophetic, and a vast amount of the 28% are these passages. Look, look what it says. The millennium covers 40 chapters of the Old Testament. The millennium, there are promises to David, three chapters about the millennium. Second Sam, remember his, his son, the son of David, would sit on the throne of David and rule. Uh, 
and that's in 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 23, Psalm 89 is all about it. Then it's predicted in the Psalms and Prophets, 31 chapters are about the millennium. Psalm 2, he will rule with a rod of iron. Do you remember all that that you've read? Psalm 45, Psalm 110, Isaiah 2 talks about the, the transformation. So does 4 and 11 and 12 and 30. 35 is a huge millennial chapter, and it's long. It's 60 verses. Um, chapter 61, chapter 66. I mean, let's just go to Isaiah 66. This, you talk about a verse that's fascinating. Remember Isaiah? If I was teaching Isaiah, I would tell you that Isaiah is a miniature Bible. How many chapters are in Isaiah? How many books are in the Bible? How many books are in the Old Testament? And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are just like the Old Testament. And look, in chapter 40, we find John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Isaiah is like a miniature Bible, but wait a minute. Who put the chapter divisions in? Bishop Langton in the 1200s. So you have to be very careful about all the people that do these interesting studies that say because uh, all these verses have verse 66 and verse 6 and verse 16 and all this, and they make all these codes up from the Bible, and you can immediately be skeptical because the verse numbers were not put in the Bible till the 16th century by Robert Stephanus, a printer in Geneva. And the chapter divisions were not put in the Bible until the 1200s by Bishop Stephen Langton, who, who divided the huge Bible up into chapters, into 1189 chapters, so that the people, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Church of England, the Anglican Church in England, and he did it so they could read the Bible through in a year. And he, he gave them these little divisions so they wouldn't get, you know, that's how we got read three chapters or however many chapters to read through, thanks to Langton who, by the way, also helped write the final edition of the Magna Carta. You've heard of the Great Charter of England. So, I mean, this guy was helping the church and helping civilization and everything else. But the 66th chapter is about, of Isaiah, and it, it's about the millennium and goes beyond. And it says in verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I shall make remain before me, says the Lord. That's exactly how chapter 21 of Revelation starts. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth right out of Isaiah. So your descendants and your name remain. It shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another. What? In heaven? They have Jewish stuff? I thought the church replaced Israel. Did you know in heaven and during the millennium, we revert back to Sabbaths, feasts, Priests, wow. See, there's so much people that only read the New Testament don't even know about what God's going to do because all scriptures are given by inspiration of God. All scriptures are profitable for doctrine and reproof and for correction and instruction and righteousness. But that's not all it says. Look at verse 23. Um, all flesh shall come and worship before me, says the Lord, and they shall go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die. What? Their worm does not die? I think I've heard that somewhere. That's exactly what Jesus says in the book of Mark when he's talking about the valley of Hinnom and hell. That's where hell comes from. Gehenna, Gehinnom, the valley of Hinnom. And Jesus is talking right from Isaiah, and that's what we find in Revelation 20, the lake of fire. Their fire is not quenched, and they shall be in hordes to all flesh. 
and you say, could you explain all that? Yep, if you come to my Isaiah class, I will, but we're in Revelation, so keep going. The promise to Mary. Thirdly, Luke talks about her son sitting on the throne of David. Micah, uh, whose goings forth have been of old from everlasting. All of these are millennial promises. And then look at the Lord's Prayer. That thy kingdom come is talking about not just me every day surrendering to the Lord, but it's talking about this, the, the visible rule of God, which is first manifest in the millennium and all that. But let's just distill down those 40 chapters to one chart. This is what happens in the millennium. Creation is changed. Zechariah tells us the physical changes. Isaiah tells us the curse is lifted, not removed, lifted. Uh, creation is redeemed. Do you remember Paul says in Romans 8 that all the universe is groaning. The whole universe is groaning. Uh, we call it the laws of entropy. We call it the laws of thermodynamics. But all the universe is headed toward a heat death, toward slowing down until it finally stops. Death. It's groaning. It sees it coming. Uh, it's, it's, uh, Paul talks a lot about that in Romans. Creation starts feeling the... the the law of sin and death is starting to recede. And the earth is full of the Lord. What he always promised, the whole earth. I mean, he is, well, death and sin are still around, but everybody has their own land and it's fruitful, but it just goes beyond. If you have time to read all 40 of those chapters, I'll tell you some of the fun stuff. One thing is, nobody dies unless they're rebellious. So you get to come for the whole time to God's, you know, paradise. You can live the whole thousand years. Uh, if, if you survive the tribulation and are a believer, you enter the millennium and you get to live the whole thousand years. But if you, as a believer, rebel, which should be a rarity, or if you're a child of a believer who never becomes a believer and are living in the millennium and rebel, you're cut off. But the Lord even there, it says in Isaiah, gives them a hundred years before he cuts them off. He's kind of saying, come on, come on. Get with the program, but they don't. You know, come to the visitor center and see me and all that. Then it says that, I love this one. The visitor center, I'm going to show you in just a minute, is so massive, it's seven miles by seven miles, that all the world is supposed to come and walk through it. It's kind of like going through the Ark Encounter or the Creation Museum or whatever you can think of. And everybody there and all the exhibits are talking about God. That's what the Millennial Temple is. I'm going to show you what they're going to be teaching them. What happens if the people say it's way too far for me to go all the way to Jerusalem. You know, I live in Namibia, or I live in, you know, Japan or wherever. I know the world will be changed and, and all that, but there's still people from all the, the nations, it says, and they're all streaming into Jerusalem, and some of them are going to say, it's not interesting to me. They're the rebels, by the way. You know what God does to them? This shows, you talk about society. God says, if you don't come, Isaiah tells us, if you don't come to the visitor center, it will not rain on your field. So here you plant your crops and your neighbor plants your crops and it's all like the sprinklers come on over there and yours is and all your neighbors know that you didn't go to Jerusalem like you were supposed to. I mean that's how curious. I mean you could spend uh, my dean when I went to Bible school to seminary his whole dissertation he spent his years writing his dissertation just on the millennial kingdom. 
and his dissertation was huge. Okay, next. As I was reading this, I found something in verses 7 and 8. Look at chapter 20 of Revelation. Remember, we're supposed to make this devotional. And so I read the Bible and first want to understand what it is saying. That's interpretation. And once you get the correct interpretation, then you can have endless applications. There are countless applications. These are my applications based on the truths. Number five there, Satan's hold on fallen humanity is super powerful. Satan is chained in the pit. The demons are confined to the pit. Earth gets close to perfect. Yet as soon as Satan is released, he deceives everybody except the saints. Verse 7, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. The abyss, the busas, where those cosmic monsters are. And he will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. And the number will be as the sand of the sea. Verse 9, then they went up the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp. That is so, I love that. The camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Remember, nothing new. Do you remember what happened to, uh, you know, Nadab and Abihu? And remember all the rebels? And, and one time, uh, God opened the earth and swallowed them. And another time, fire went out and devoured them. This, and same thing with the two witnesses and everything. Same thing with Elijah. Fire devoured the enemies. And the devil who deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet already are. How long has, have the beast and the false prophet been in the lake of fire? A thousand years. They're cast there, if you remember, at the end of uh, chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 20, the beast was captured, the Antichrist, and the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire. The first two into hell. The very first occupants of hell are Revelation 19.20. It's the Antichrist and the false prophet. But look at chapter 20 and verse 9. It says, I, I mean verse 7. Whoop, verse 9. Verse 10. There we go. I had to find it. The devil is cast in where the Antichrist and the false prophet already are. And so the third occupant of hell, Lake of Fire, Gehenna, first the Antichrist, then the false prophet, then the devil himself. And then we'll get into the others in a moment. Wow. Hungering for God marks a believer as genuine. That's the next observation I made from verse 9. Uh, it talks about the camp of the saints. Did you know all these people are scattered out in their farms and everything, and once a year they're coming through the visitor center, and all of a sudden, some of them say, I like this here. I'm going to actually camp here because I can't get enough of God. I can't get enough of his word. I can't get enough of seeing, uh, you know, the, the apostles sitting on the 12 thrones and seeing Christ coming down and seeing these saints coming from heaven. I love this. Hungering for God marks believers as genuine. Amazingly, the true believers in the millennium begin to congregate around the throne, around the temple, around the city of Jerusalem. They can't bear to be far from God. 
They display their love and adoration of God the Son by their chosen closeness to his millennial temple. Now remember, Jesus opens God's visitor center. See, he is not willing that any should perish. Even though everybody incoming to the millennium is saved, their children are not. Every Christianity is one generation away from extinction. Every, constantly, always. Christian children are not shoe-ins. Just because you're a Christian parent doesn't mean your kids are all going to be believers. You know, remember I told you I read the Bible through a different topic every time? Do you know what I did one time? The family. Do you, know, you want to know my conclusion after reading all the Bible about family and marriage and parenting? There is no perfect Norman Rockwell sitting around like this at Thanksgiving dinner politely praying for the meal. There's not one of those families in the Scripture except maybe one. Maybe one. Was Abraham's family perfect? Are you kidding? You know how God describes his oldest son? He says he was a wild donkey of a man, Ishmael. That's not positive. I mean, David, David's kids were killing each other. David was killing other women's husbands so he could have them. I mean, what a bad, dysfunctional family that was. I mean, some think that Paul might have been divorced because you couldn't be a witness of the Sanhedrin unless you're married. So either his wife died or he was divorced. That's why he knew so much about marriage and everything else. So where's the perfect family in the Bible? The one that everybody's in America is buying a book and watching videos in order to have. You know, this perfect, everybody, you know, perfect. Where is it? There aren't any in the Bible except one. Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John the Baptist. It's the only spirit-filled family in the Bible where it actually says in Luke, Zechariah was full of spirit, Elizabeth was full of spirit, John the Baptist was full of spirit. But how would you like to have him as your son? I mean, the guy wore a modified Tarzan outfit and ate bugs and lived out in the wilderness. I mean, we would say he was reclusive at the least, but that is a spirit-filled family. There are no other examples of a totally, wonderfully, godly, functioning father, a wonderful, spirit-filled, godly, functioning mother, and all the kids wonderfully following the Lord. There is no biblical record of those in all 1189 chapters. So what should we do? Give up? No. God didn't show us one so that we all don't try and copy one. What we're supposed to do is be the right parent. And before you're the right parent, you be the right man, the right woman, the biblical man and woman. Then you have a biblical marriage, which the Bible has a lot to say. Boy, that study is amazing. It changed everything about how I once I met Bonnie, how I treated her, because I saw what I was supposed to be. But I'm not teaching on marriage and family, so let's get back to this. Let's look at the visitor center. Here it is. I brought you a picture. The Millennial Temple is described in Ezekiel 40 to 48 as 25,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits. A cubit is from here to here. So it's like 18, 16, 18 inches. So it's about a foot and a half. So it's 37,500 feet this way and 37,500 feet this way. And there are 5,280 feet in a mile, so it's about seven miles by seven miles. So that's the millennial temple, as described for eight chapters, okay? And it, by the way, they go back to animal sacrifices during the millennium. They go back to priests. God has rules for who can be a priest in the temple. They go back to the Jewish feasts in the temple during the millennium. You say, wait a minute, all sacrifices are over. Mm -hmm. They are for now. 
But was anybody in the Old Testament saved by doing any of that stuff in Leviticus? No. They were all saved by trusting in a substitute. That's why they had those lambs. The people, they didn't even have books back then. They certainly didn't have their nice cell phone and you know, podcast, and so they had to see visual things. So they had to see a substitute was their only way of being saved, and they had to bring a perfect substitute. They had to lay their hands on it. I mean, when you read Leviticus and all of that stuff, it's so exciting how the father came and the family, and they'd lay their hands. He'd lay the hands on the head of the animal for the family, and all their sins were symbolically placed there, and then the innocent one was slain, and the blood was collected, and it was sprinkled, and God said, your sins are covered again. I remember when I used to pastor down south, people always wore, I was a pastor in Georgia, and they loved to wear white men, wore white suits to church. They loved white, you know, went with the Lord. But when we would have communion, inevitably someone would, one of the older ones would spill his communion cup, and what would he have on his um, beautiful white suit? A little stain. His wife opened that pocketbook up, take out her Johnson & Johnson's baby powder, little one, You couldn't see the stain anymore. They were clever. You could cover up just about anything from the potluck dinner and everything. Little Johnson's, now that baby powder has talcum and it causes you know, respiratory problems. You shouldn't. We didn't know that. When I raised our kids, I did the diapers and I would go, I would give them a big blast of that white powder. It would just be floating in the air. I think I'll probably die of it, but I hope they don't. But they would put that white powder on. Did it take away the stain? Neither did any sacrifices in the Old Testament. They just talcum powdered them. They covered them up until Jesus came and everyone whose sins were temporarily covered up by the Old Testament sacrifices which pointed forward to Christ's coming. The whole Old Testament, all that stuff pointed to Christ's coming. What are they doing in the millennium? Are people getting saved by offering animals? No. They're still pointing. Only now, We point forward in the Old Testament, they pointed forward in the Old Testament to Christ. When we celebrate communion, does communion save us? No. It's a picture of a sacrifice. We point back. God chose to end everything with the pointing back. Uh, So what we're saying is God's calendar, the prophetic meaning of the Jewish feasts, is still relevant to us. When you find the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, when you study the book of Acts, he's always saying, I want to make it back by Pentecost. I want to make it back by the feast. I want to do this and that. Paul, well into his Christian life, was still celebrating the feast. And you know what he told the Corinthians? He said, if you want to understand the work of Christ in communion, Christ is our Passover. That's 1 Corinthians 5. Christ, our Passover? And see, what he's saying is there's a lot here that God designed to show us. And basically, the seven feasts of Israel are the Passover, as Paul reminds us, completely portrays Christ's death. And if I was teaching Exodus, I would show you that. The unleavened bread portrays Christ's burial. The feast of first fruits, Jesus actually rose on the beginning, the very beginning of the feast of first fruits. Exactly 50 days, by the way, the feast of first fruits in Exodus is to be celebrated on the day after the Sabbath. That's how it says it in Exodus. What would the day after the Sabbath day be? Sabbath day is what day? Saturday. What's the day after Saturday? It says in Exodus that the Feast of first fruits would be on a Sunday. It also says, look at this, that exactly seven Sabbath days 
plus one later would be the Feast of Pentecost. So the Feast of First Fruits and 50 days later, the Feast of Pentecost, both were on Sundays. And it's beautifully revealed in the Old Testament. And that, of course, is when the Holy Spirit came and all that has already happened. And now we have three of the Jewish feasts left. The Feast of Trumpets, and you know what it says? At the last trump, the dead in Christ will rise and we'll be caught up together with them. And many believe that the rapture is going to coincide with the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets. Then there's a Day of Atonement. That's when Christ comes and, and redeems back the earth. That's the second coming. And then what is the Feast of Tabernacles? That's exactly a picture of the millennium. So that's going to be one of the exhibits, I bet, in the Millennial Visitor Center. Okay, real quickly. Heaven is home, life is camping. That's what I got out of chapter 20, verse 9. They surrounded the camp of the saints. Those, those millennial saints give up their, their farm and whatever comforts they had there to, to live in a temporary type of place in the camp of the saints. That's what it says. What does it mean? Well, they stay close to God's temple. They stay close to each other. They're realizing more and more people in the world aren't into God and they want to be around people with God. There's always been God's desire that we stay close to him and not ever get comfortable with the world. It's just another beautiful picture. Peter reminds us we're like living in a tent here on earth. That's what 2 Peter 1, 13 and 14 say. Life is just camping. The best is yet to come. This world is not our home. We're just pilgrims and strangers. Can you imagine what you sitting here could do with your life if you did not get totally into spending every moment of your life getting as much of this earth as possible? We went camping, Bonnie, my wonderful wife, Bonnie. I saw you. You're very distracting. Um, but she's back. Um, we went camping with this family. He was an international banker. Unbelievable. I could talk about him. He'd commuted to London for his job and all this stuff. They had never been camping in their life. Their idea of camping was going, you know, to the Ritz-Carlton or something. And we said, no, no, we're going to sleep in tents and sleep bags on the ground in the rain in Prince Edward Island because we were all watching Annie, or what was her name? Not Annie. What? Anne with an E, that one, you know, and all that, the book, and it's all there. And, and so we we watched it, and the kids read the book, and we wanted to go there. So we went camping on Prince Edward Island. They had never been camping. They came with this minivan. They had more camping gear, I think, than L.L. Bean. You know, and, and there they were. It was just weighted down. When they put their tent up, I mean, they had like a palace tent. We had a little tent, you know, because I know how hard it is to take it down in the rain and everything. So we just had a big enough tent for our family. And when I put in the stakes, I just do them lightly with my foot, you know, because you have to get them out in the middle of the night when you're going to the ferry. And so, not Rick, he bought a mallet, the L.L. Bean mallet, and he bought the extra length stakes, and he put the first one in, his son held it, and he went like he was putting up a circus tent. He buried that, that peg out of sight. At the last day, the ferry was at 6 a.m. It was an hour's drive away. We had to get up at 3 a.m., pack, and it was pouring. And so what I did is, I grabbed the kids, put them in the car, it was started, Bonnie sat in the car, watched them. I went back in, wrapped everything up, and she would open the door and I'd throw it in and she'd put it in. And then finally, 
I ran around in the rain and I pulled out all the stakes and I collapsed the tent and I put it in a garbage bag and gave it to Bonnie and we were sitting there in the car with the windshield wipers going and Rick was still on the first peg. And I moved my headlights for him. I thought, at least I can light him up, you know. And finally I felt for about two seconds and I felt really bad and I went out and got my, I had brought a, a cloth thing and I went out and I pulled his stakes out to help him but I went, don't put your stakes in too deep. Life is camping. Heaven is home. Be a pilgrim and a stranger. Satan's released. When does it happen? Right at the end of the millennium. It's mind-boggling to think that people could sink so low as to listen to Satan after a thousand years of seeing Jesus and a perfect world under his rule. Wow. Fear the holiness of Jesus. No scene in the Bible grips our minds and stirs our souls as much as the last verse of Revelation 20. Imagine the scene. In one moment, all the angels and all the humans who have ever lived on this planet, perhaps as many as 40 billion. How did I get that number? You can look it up. Look at what they think global population, the cumulative amount of humans that have lived since the first ones. In utter silence, the scene opens. In the glow of the glory, surrounded by his throne, stand all the redeemed, and behind them in countless ranks are the angels, and the four angelic creatures are swirling around, and all the dead, small and great, are standing there. Every single person who's ever lived, not one soul escaped the summons to the court of God Almighty. They're called, one by one, declared guilty by their own words. That's the verse you have to memorize, Revelation 20, verse 15. Whoever's name was not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life was cast in the lake of fire, and they're cast in. And hell is worse than you ever thought. Nobody talked as much about hell as Jesus did. And when Jesus talks about hell, he describes a place of horrible eternal darkness where people are absolutely conscious. And it's never ending. And that's where we'll come back.